Please rise if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be reading Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12 from the English Standard Version, and it's available in the Pew Bible on page 1003 or behind me on the projection. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is possible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the reading of God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, and let's pray together. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the day of rebellion. Lord, your word has issued that warning to us in this book, and so we pray this morning as we open your word that we would not harden our hearts, that that we would come before you with soft hearts eager to hear what you have to say, hearts ready to be changed by the gospel of Christ. So meet us this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, um, we bought a swing set from Walmart to put into our backyard, the cheapest thing we could find. We had just moved to Hudson and the kids were used to having a swing set uh, in their yard where we'd lived before, and there was none. And so, you know, 
found the cheapest thing I could find, put this swing set, took, I don't know, afternoon or so to put it together. And when our little girls would play on this swing set, it worked great. They would be out there, they'd spend hours on that thing, swinging back and forth to their heart's content. But when Joshua or some of the neighbor boys would try and swing on this thing, who were a little older, a little heavier, uh, the whole thing would move up and down, and the legs would lift off of the ground as they're going forward and so on. And we had anchored it with those little 10-inch steel stakes they give you, and it's not like we hadn't done anything, but those were useless. Uh, Without drilling down deeper to anchor it more firmly to the ground, that swing set was not capable of handling a heavier load. And the same thing can happen in our walk with Christ. There are some loads in life, some challenges or questions that we face that are relatively easy to carry with just a little faith or a little knowledge of Jesus. When I became a Christian at the end of high school, I had all sorts of questions about what in the world does it mean to walk with God, to to follow Jesus. Is is making out with my girlfriend bad? That was one of the questions I was asking. Or, uh, you know, am I supposed to go to church every Sunday? Uh, what does the Bible say about heaven and hell? And, and how can I be sure that God still loves me when I mess up again? And with each of those questions, there were people, uh, youth pastors, adults, friends, who would open the Bible and help me see the relatively clear and simple answers from Scripture about those questions. So I didn't know very much about Jesus, but I knew that he loved me, and I knew, I understood what he had to say about those things. But then there are some big questions and some big trials that find us in life, where those simple answers just simply can't hold that weight. You can feel your faith being uprooted from the ground as you carry those burdens. Trials like years of unanswered prayer or suffering and loss, feeling abandoned by God, even though I'm doing, as far as I can tell, everything he's asking me to do. Or questions like, how can Christ be the only way of salvation when when there are so many in the world and throughout history who've never heard of him? It's a big question. Or how can certain, a certain behavior be bad when the people who want to do it are so nice and, and, and just want to do it out of love? It's a big question. And all of a sudden, those simple answers that used to make so much sense of our faith, all of a sudden, we're left unsettled unsure, vulnerable. There comes a time in our faith when we need to be willing and able to drill down deeper in order to hold on longer to Christ. To move on from simply repeating the basics of the Christian faith to a more mature doctrine and relationship, a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, not just the doctrine, but the person, one that's able to bear the weight of the questions 
and the challenges that we face. A, a deeper understanding that offers a better assurance when our faith feels like it's about to be unrooted. And that's what the author wants to do in our passage in explaining the relationship between Jesus and Melchizedek. Uh, the church that he's writing to in the first century was facing a significant challenge. They were facing intense pressure to go back to Judaism, to go back to the old covenant as though Jesus had never come or he wasn't really the Messiah or, or that he'd never fulfilled God's promises. And, and so the author's goal throughout this letter, is what we've been seeing, is to convince his readers that Jesus is better than all of that. He's better than the old covenant, better than the angels who delivered it, better than Moses who mediated it. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, he's better than Aaron, the high priest who applied it. But the pressure, the pressure to go back to Judaism, to, to question Christ and all that he's done, all that he is, that pressure raised some pretty big questions about the relationship between Jesus and this old covenant that seemed so attractive. Questions that their persecutors no doubt exploited to try and trip them up and therefore required a deeper grasp of Christ in order to hold on tighter with full assurance. For instance, in the last passage we looked at, he made this big case that Jesus is this better high priest. Well, if you know anything about the Old Covenant, you know that the priesthood comes from Levi. And Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so how can he be a priest if he's from Judah? Explain that one, how Jesus is better. And that's exactly what the author wants to do. He wants to explain how Jesus is able to be a better and lasting high priest because he comes from a more ancient and abiding order of priesthood priesthood of Melchizedek. And he introduced that idea at the very end of the last passage that we looked at, chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he begins our passage, about this, we have much to say. I, I want to elaborate for you and help you understand better just what it means that Jesus is from this order of Melchizedek. But then he hesitates. He wants to drill deeper to strengthen their grip on Christ, but there's an obstacle in his way. There's a barrier that he feels he needs to deal with first before he can elaborate on this relationship between Christ and this ancient figure of Melchizedek, which he's eventually going to do in chapter 7. And so what is that obstacle that he runs into, this barrier to a firm grip on Christ? What's the danger of a faulty grip? And what's the benefit of grasping Christ more firmly from drilling down deeper in both doctrine and relationship? That's what our passage invites us to consider this morning. And so we start with the barrier to a firm grip on Christ. Verses 5.11 through 6.3. What is the obstacle that, that keeps him from just launching into this 
full-orbed explanation of Christ and his priesthood. Look at verse 11 again. About this, about Melchizedek, Jesus, and so on, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he stops right there and he doesn't move on. What, what makes this so hard to explain? It's tempting to think that he doesn't go into it because it's just really hard to understand. It's, it's complicated theology. It's a complex idea. And so I better, you know, slow down because this is deep water. But that's not what he says. That's not why he hesitates. The reader's inability to go there is not an intellectual problem. That the doctrine's just too elevated. It's a spiritual problem. They've become dull of hearing. Not dull of mind, dull of heart, dull of hearing. So, so what does that mean? Well, the word translated dull in verse 10 here, it's the same word that's translated sluggish in chapter 6, verse 12. So our passage opens and ends with this problem of dullness or sluggishness. It's the picture of laziness. That's the problem. Being disengaged, disinterested, unmoved by the urgency or the importance of the situation, they are spiritually lazy. That's the problem. And because of this spiritual laziness, their spiritual growth has been stunted. He continues in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, several of you in this room are elementary teachers. Uh, You expect in elementary school, especially the the lower grades, that, that students are going to have to focus on the basics, right? Learning the ABCs, learning how to read, uh, learning their numbers and adding and subtracting. You don't expect that when a student starts middle school that you have to go back over the alphabet with them. In fact, you expect that if you were to take those middle schoolers and put them in a kindergarten class, that they could teach those students the alphabet. That's what you expect. And that's what the author expects of the church that he's writing to here, that at this stage of their spiritual growth, they should be able to move on beyond some of the basic foundational truths of the faith. Not to leave them behind, but to build on them as a foundation. But instead, he finds himself going back over the alphabet with middle schoolers at the beginning of each school year when he should be teaching them algebra. And, and so what are some of those basic doctrines that they're stuck on. He, he gives us some examples in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says things like repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So what's involved in beginning a relationship with God? How do you become a Christian? We should have that established by now, right? Turning away from sin, from works that are, are done either out of a spiritual death or that lead to spiritual death, and instead turning in faith toward God, faith specifically in Jesus Christ. That's one of those foundational things. The second he lists instructions about 
washings and the laying on of hands, which is most likely helping new believers sort out some of the ceremonial aspects of the Christian faith. So understanding this transition, especially if you think of of Jewish believers, uh, believers who've come to faith in Jesus out of Judaism, understanding the transition from the various uh, ceremonial washings of Judaism to see how those ultimately kind of point to and are fulfilled and replaced by baptism in Christ, and then the laying on of hands, which had its role in different kinds of ceremonies in the church, blessing, commissioning, even healing. And so that was the second one. And then the third, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Instructions about what's to come. So how to begin a relationship, what some of those ceremonial aspects look like, and and what's to come. The hope of the resurrection for those who belong to Christ and the terror of eternal judgment for those who don't. Those are some critical, foundational elements of the Christian faith. But to survive the storm that they're currently in, they're going to have to drill deeper. To move on from simply repeating the basics over and over and to a more mature doctrine and relationship with Christ. Or the way he illustrates it at the end of chapter 5, they need to move on from just milk and they need to start introducing solids to their diet. You know, if if you've had young kids, you know, there's that transition phase where it's not just the bottle. They need to start learning how to chew. That's what he's talking about here. I I want to help you feast on the beauty and assurance of Christ as your high priest, but you need milk still, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Because of their spiritual sluggishness, they don't know how to apply the word of God to the situation they're currently in. They just don't know what to do. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Those who are not lazy in their faith, but instead are focused and disciplined. They, they don't tune out when someone's teaching the Word because we've already got this. I don't need to pay attention to this. I've got this down, only to be surprised when life hands them a test later that they weren't prepared for. But those who are willing and able to drill deeper into their knowledge and relationship with Christ so that they can discern the difference between good and evil as they follow Christ in this broken world. In order to finish well, they've got to go deeper. And and you can see that distinction between the two crowds who surrounded Jesus during his final week on earth at the beginning and the end of of that week, the week we're celebrating during Holy Week. The crowd that accompanied him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the crowd that surrounded him at his trial before Pontius Pilate on Good Friday. Now, sometimes we read that story and we think that's actually the same crowd, the same people. They just are really fickle. You know, they're worshiping him one day and condemning him the next. And and I've thought that in the past, but if you look more closely at the details of that story, it's almost certainly not the case that it's 
primarily the same people. It seems that it's two distinct crowds. Uh, Luke 19 tells us that as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So it was his disciples accompanying him into the city. And Matthew 21 makes a a similar distinction between the crowds that went before him and followed him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, mostly pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, and the people of the city who were then stirred up saying, who is this guy? So it seems to be two different crowds. And then John clarifies even further that those who took the palm branches and went out to meet Jesus did so because they had heard about the miracle of Lazarus. They had heard about the sign and they wanted to come and worship. And so you have this one crowd gathering, accompanying him into the city, and then a second crowd on Good Friday that appears mostly to have been residents of Jerusalem stirred up by the chief priests and the leaders uh, in order to antagonize and hurl insults against Jesus. And so two crowds responding to the same person in two completely different ways. What's the difference? What's the difference between them? I mean, they heard the same teaching. They saw the same miracles. The, The chief priest saw these signs just as the crowds did. One crowd crying out in worship, Hosanna to the son of David, and another crowd hurling insults, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Completely different reactions to the same person. So what is the difference? The difference was their grasp of Christ. Their understanding of just who Jesus is. One crowd saw Jesus as the king. They couldn't believe that God was finally answering their prayers and fulfilling his promises by sending this king. Now, that crowd outside the gates was most likely uh, a little shocked because their expectation of how God would, how Jesus would establish his kingdom probably had more to do with a bloody revolt than a bloody savior. But they recognized Jesus as king and they worshiped him as king and Jesus did not silence their praise when the Pharisees tried to get him to. So one crowd recognized Jesus as king, but the other crowd saw him as a traitor and an imposter. They couldn't believe that God would answer their prayers or fulfill his promises through someone like this. That just didn't compute. And and here's the the deal here. The failure of the second crowd to recognize Jesus as king wasn't an intellectual problem. It wasn't that the, that the disciples of Jesus had, you know, more education or a higher IQ, and so they were able to figure out what the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't. It wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a spiritual problem. They thought they had God nailed down. They were the keepers of the covenant and the protectors of the kingdom. And so they didn't pay attention in class when Jesus was teaching, when Jesus was doing his great works. Their hearts were dull and sluggish. 
And as a result, they could no longer tell the difference between good and evil. The good that Jesus did, they condemned as evil. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. They condemned the good Jesus did as evil, and the good they thought they were doing to protect God's kingdom ended up being the greatest evil committed in human history. They crucified the Son of God. So without understanding who Jesus is, good and evil get completely flipped upside down. The stakes are incredibly high. The Pharisees and the scribes were so sure and yet so wrong. And, and it's not just, you know, failing a math quiz in fifth grade. This is life and death. Those who were so sure that they were defending God's kingdom ended up finding themselves eternally outside that kingdom. And the author of Hebrews registers the same warning in our passage. He calls them in 6.1 to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity because of the utter danger of a faulty grip on Christ, of misappropriating, misunderstanding Jesus. And he gives that warning in verses 4 to 8. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Those are some hard verses. Not just because that is a heavy, heavy warning, but also because they raise a lot of questions. Is the author of Hebrews saying here that that it's possible to lose your salvation and that once you lose it, you, you can never get it back? Is that what he's talking about? Is he saying that there's a level at which my sin can get so bad that I'm 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 just finally out of luck? There's no more second chances? Those are big questions. And whenever we wrestle with big questions like this, we have to take them in light of the whole counsel of Scripture. And we have to remember what they're doing here. What's the purpose of saying this in this passage? And so in terms of the whole counsel of Scripture, we know from places like Ephesians 1, that salvation is God's sovereign work. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is God's work according to God's will not ours. Or as Ephesians 2 puts it, therefore we are saved by grace, not by works. Grace being given something we utterly don't deserve. And those whom God saves, according to Ephesians 4, he seals until the end. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We also know from Philippians 1 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And from Matthew 24, 24, that it's impossible for false teachers to lead God's elect to fall away. Because according to 1 Peter 1, it is by God's power, not our power, God's power that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so therefore, as John 10 assures us, Jesus has given his sheep eternal life, not probationary life to see if we finally keep it together all the way. Eternal life, and they can never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. So, can a genuinely born-again believer in Jesus, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and has made new, who's been crucified with Christ and no longer lives, but Christ lives in him, can a genuine born-again believer in Jesus lose their salvation? According to the whole counsel of Scripture, the answer is no. You didn't earn your salvation, and therefore you cannot unearn it. We are accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done for us and our union with Christ such that for God to reject us, he would have to reject his son first because that's the basis of our acceptance. And he's not going to do that. And so one of the great assurances that comes from holding fast to Christ is finding out that it's actually him who's holding us. It's a great assurance. Okay, so what are these verses doing here then? What are they saying? And how do they contribute to the bigger argument that he's making about the importance of drilling deeper in our faith and and the problem of a sluggish faith? Well, obviously, these verses are here as a warning. They're here as a warning. A warning to those who are content in their spiritual laziness about the apostate, those who have experienced Christianity in some way but ultimately forsake the faith. So it's not just talking about your sins adding up to some kind of breaking point and then, oh, you're out of lives, game over. It's not the point. It's talking about those who have tasted the gospel of Jesus in some way, but ultimately reject it and deny Christ. The apostate, those who reject and deny Jesus. As one author explains, such persons of their own choice withdraw themselves from the sphere of redemption and take their stand with those who crucify the Son of God and hold him up to contempt. They show themselves in their true colors. They join the ranks of the mob that yells, crucify him, crucify him. And that wickedly derides and insults the suffering Savior, saying, Jesus deserved what he got. He illustrates this in verses 7 to 8, that that the falseness of their faith is revealed by the lack of their fruit. When the gifts of God don't produce what they ought, that's evidence that God's not actually there. That their their faith is in something else. And so this is a warning about the apostate, about those who would fall away and deny 
Christ and who ultimately show themselves to be false. And there's no opportunity for repentance after that. But this warning about the apostate is given to the spiritually lazy, those who are content in their sluggishness and and stuck in a simplistic understanding of the faith, who assume they've got God figured out, and so there's no need to to learn anything new or, or pay careful attention. Doctrine's so boring anyway. It's like, so, you know, they, someone's teaching God's word, they treat it like that little airplane warning announcement that nobody pays attention to because I've heard it before and I have this down. Those who think nothing of hopping onto the swing set with all of the weight of their challenges and questions without any care of whether it's securely anchored to the ground. Those who are therefore at risk of presuming upon God's grace and becoming unstable and uprooted in their faith. So, it's a warning. And we need to let the weight of that warning stand as a caution when we're tempted to turn away, as a reminder of the urgency of paying careful attention to Christ. If you're not serious about Jesus and following him, don't presume that because at some point you had some spiritual experience that you therefore must belong to God. If your heart isn't bearing fruit for God, if you don't care about growing in your faith with Jesus, that's who this warning is for. Don't take him lightly. So we need to let the weight of the warning stand. But for those who truly do belong to Jesus, we need to hear not just the warning that keeps us holding fast to Christ, but also the assurance that comes from knowing he's the one ultimately holding us. And that's what he concludes on in verses 9 to 12, the benefit of grasping Christ more fully. Though we speak in this way, this Strong, urgent warning, though I just got done giving you this lecture. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation, not to apostasy or condemnation. So he issues the warning because of their dullness of faith. But that warning is not a verdict. They might be lazy, But they are not lost. And he wants to reassure them of that. And the basis of that assurance is is that there actually is evidence of their faith. If you look at their life, you can see God at work in them. The rain that has fallen on this church has borne good good fruit, and God's not going to overlook that. He sees their work And the love that they've shown for his name in serving the saints as they still do. And they should be encouraged by that fruit. But they should be just as eager to deepen their faith and understanding of Christ as they are to express that faith in love and service. So in other words, he's saying here, you're doing a great job loving and serving one another. And God sees that. But you need to do just as good a job at moving on to mature doctrine of Christ so that you can enjoy the better assurance that comes from him. 
the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, that you might be equipped to finish well. That same note we see over and over again in this book, he wants us to finish well. And that means sometimes we need to drill deeper in our doctrine of Christ. And so really, this, is, this passage is a call to care about doctrine. It's like a dirty word in some circles, actually, to have to you know, think about doctrine. And I get that sometimes that can be boring, or boring in the way that it's taught, or that people can spend so much time learning that they never actually obey, or so much time arguing about whoever's right that they don't actually do anything good for the Lord and His kingdom. But serving the Lord and learning about the Lord and growing in relationship with the Lord are not mutually exclusive things. And the reality is that you're not going to love others well for very long with a shallow understanding of Jesus. You will run out of what you've got to offer. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is good milk for baby Christians. But it will not keep us from thinking that God has abandoned us in our suffering or slipping into a prosperity gospel or turning Jesus into the social justice warrior for whatever cause of the day. And it's not going to help your friend make it through the night when they get the cancer diagnosis or when their spouse leaves them after 23 years. You need to go deeper. And so just as the early church had to go deeper in order to resist the temptation of reverting to Judaism, we need to be willing and able to go deeper in our grasp of Christ in order to stand against false teaching and false promises in the fractured world that we live in. You can think of it this way. It is possible to be solid in our love and our service but sloppy in our doctrine and our faith. And eventually, what you believe will shape what you do, not the other way around. Not the other way around. And so this is a call to care about doctrine, to become skilled in the Word, knowing it and knowing how to apply it. It's also, therefore, a call to discipleship to teaching one another the Word and helping each other grow in our understanding and relationship with Christ. If the only time that we open the Word together is when we're gathered in this room on Sunday morning, if that's the only time that the people of Westgate are opening the Word together, then we shouldn't be surprised if we see some stunted spiritual growth. That's like trying to live on one meal a week. It's just not a good idea. You're not going to grow very fast with that lack of nourishment. Now, hopefully many of us are in the practice of spending time in the Word personally by ourselves midweek. That's crucial and important to do. But we need to feed on the Word together, not just Sunday morning, but in lives shared around the gospel of Christ. Because it's in 
reading Scripture together in community as you're trying to put it into practice and find your way forward in living and serving and loving, that we actually learn how to read and understand the Word and, and how to apply it and obey it and how to wrestle with honestly with hard questions and learn how to follow Christ in a sometimes hostile world. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a learner. A learner. That's what the word actually means. The word disciple means learner. So we need to continue, not just to go deep ourselves, but together. Together. So that might be reading and, 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 and opening God's Word together in a Bible study or a small group, a home group, or something like that. But I hope that some of it is just you getting together with your friend or with your kids or with someone just to read the Word together and share life. Maybe it's someone who's a little bit further down the road from you spiritually, and you can learn from them and from their life and, and, and their faith. And maybe there's somebody who's a little younger in the faith than you that you can do the same thing with them. We need to open God's Word together if we're going to drill deeper. This is not about... Caring about doctrine is not about moving off to seminary or something like that. It's about taking this book seriously together in community and in faith. That's what it's about. And so it's a call to care about doctrine and a call to discipleship, to deepen our knowledge and relationship with Christ. But it's ultimately a call to keep our eyes and our faith fixed on Jesus. He's the one who offers a better assurance in this completely uh, tumultuous world. It's better than the old covenant, better than anything this world can offer, and better than anything we can actually do for God. When my assurance before God is based on how good my day has been, well, you can imagine how flimsy that assurance is because it's only as strong as my weakest moment. And there's plenty of those weak moments. But if, if my assurance comes from Christ, see, all my works will fall short. But Christ is the great high priest who secured for us an eternal redemption, a redemption that lasts forever. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a complete salvation in Christ. And so, so let's not be sluggish or lazy about that. Let's avoid the temptation to think that, that learning who Jesus is, is is kind of boring or unrelated to knowing Jesus personally. The two go hand in hand. Or is boring and unrelated to serving Jesus outward. They go hand in hand and they can't be separated. And unless you know Jesus well, unless you continue to drill deeper in your faith, we're not going to have the anchor we need for the challenges that life is going to give us. So maybe, may we be willing and able to drill deeper in order to hold on tighter and longer with that full assurance of faith in Christ. 
Because even as we hold fast to Christ, it's really him who holds us fast all the way to the end.